Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey friends, I've been holding on to this interview for a while because the content is so wonderful, but the audio isn't. We had a bunch of technical issues, including that several of the files did not save properly. My remote interview provider was able to salvage the files, but starting around the 20 minute mark of this episode, they get pretty glitchy. I've gone back and forth on how to present this to you because I know bad audio can be a real bummer. But ultimately, the conversation has won out. Hope's story is too important not to share. And in most places, you can still grasp the meaning, even if you don't catch the individual words. However, if the audio glitches are difficult for you to listen to, you might want to skip listening And instead, check out the transcript at goodgirlstalk.com for this episode. Also, this is a story that needs to be told in its entirety. So it's all here with no audio extras at Patreon. And one final note before we get started. In Western culture, we want people to see us as individuals and not be lumped into groups like all white women act like this, or all Christians believe this. You can see those gut responses when something like hashtag me too happens, and the responses are hashtag not all men. But as much as we don't want to be lumped together, we don't tend to afford that same grace or compassion to others. We heard that a small group of men hijacked planes and flew them into the World Trade Center and Pentagon, and our response was to vilify all Arabic people all around the world. We learned that a virus was discovered in China, and political and cultural leaders found it appropriate to refer to it as the China virus or the Kung flu, and there has been a drastic increase in hate crimes against Asian people. In this episode, you're going to hear a story about a Pakistani woman that might lead you to make assumptions about how all Pakistani families function, or how all Pakistani men treat their wives. I want to caution against this. Hope is one woman with one story. She and her husband are not representatives of their entire culture any more than you and your family are representatives of your entire culture, race, or religion. They are individuals living individual lives with their own individual struggles. Hope is a 38-year-old cisgender woman. She describes herself as Pakistani, Sunni Muslim, straight, married, and monogamous. She wears a headscarf. She deals with polycystic ovarian syndrome and describes her body as, quote, fluffy. I am so pleased to introduce Hope. I am so excited to talk with you today. I know that you're kind of nervous about doing this, and I want you to know that that is not only fine, it's completely normal. But thank you for agreeing to show up today. I'm thrilled to talk with you. Thank you for having me. So I always ask the same first question in every interview, which is, what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Oh, goodness. Um, The thing is, it's probably very recent. Because um, 
When I was growing up, um, especially in Pakistan, it's a conservative society. And a lot of these things are generally pushed under the table, under every, anything they can possibly find. And even perceiving sex was very taboo. And I think uh, it's also because of how I was. Um, I guess you might say I've always been left of normal in a lot of ways. The, the perception of sex, especially since it wasn't discussed very much, was a little bit skewed, you might say, when I was growing up, especially when I entered puberty. I think the only thing I knew for sure, especially even when I was very young, that I was straight. Mm. I think if you had to put it in any way, I knew I was straight. And I knew I always had feeling feelings for boys, men. But when it came into the territory of sex, I think um, I possibly viewed my sexuality much later in life. I think I was possibly in my mid-20s when I understood fully that um, I was a being that also um, desired sex. Mm. And I know it's a, it's a, a strange way to put it, but that's how it was. No, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I think there's so much to unpack just in the little bit you just said. So uh, let, I, I'm really fascinated by what you just said, that if there was one thing you knew, it's that you were straight. Because there are so many times when a young person will say, I'm gay, and everyone around them will say, well, you're too young. How could you possibly know that? And the corollary, the question that every gay person wants to ask is, well, then how did you know that you were straight? So I would love to ask you, when you say that, what does that mean to you? Well, um, I think if you look back, when I was in, I guess, kindergarten, and I knew that I had very deep feelings for one particular boy, I still remember his name. But I knew I had such deep feelings for this person. It just um, always was from one boy to the other. But it's not, I mean, I don't think I had crushes too often. Um, I just, whenever I did, I knew I always felt very deeply. And I always felt very deeply, always for boys. And I think I understand um, how a lot of gay people feel. It's just that they're not allowed to feel that way, unfortunately. It's just that I know that they feel deeply for the same gender or, uh, I mean, either gender, mm -hmm. uh, whichever way it is. Yeah. So when you were having, when you were five years old and you're having a crush on a little boy, in our, in the US, I think that that would often show up as like, we're going to hold hands or, you know, we're going to play on the playground together, or maybe we're going to give each other a kiss on the cheek. But, you know, at five years old, it's all very non-sexual because that's just not part of the world yet at that age right. for most kids. So what does a crush look like for you at five years old? I think, again, it was very benign, Leah. Um I just, I, um, for me, feelings have always been what I've felt inside. I was never very expressive. It's one of those things you inherit. I inherited from at least one of my parents. Um, not very expressive about feelings or just unable to really define those feelings and express them. I've never been the sort. So I just knew I really cared deeply for this little boy at five years old. Yeah. Did you ever talk to anybody about it? Or was it something that you kept to yourself? No, always kept it to myself. Again, these were um, subjects that um, at that age were not technically taboo. But you know, it was it, everybody made it very awkward. So <laughs> I just didn't want to be that kind of center of attention. So I was like, I'm not going to be in really getting into any of these things. Yeah, it sounds like conversation around sex and sexuality, like you said, was completely taboo. So what were you hearing? What kinds of conversations or even just um, feelings and energy were happening around the topics of sex and sexuality for you as a young person and a teenager in Pakistan? I think um, the first very first conversation about sex 
that I had with my mother was purely accidental. Um, when I was growing up in Pakistan, we used to get have um, satellite TV at that time, not a lot of, you know, TV choices. And I remember we used to get a lot of sitcoms. And there was one particular sitcom in which um, uh, a little a little girl jokingly uh, talks about uh, her mother's relationship and she spells out the word S-E-X. I was, and I remember I was very small at that time, I think maybe seven or eight years old. And I think my mother was not banking upon the fact that I could actually um, uh, understand and, <laughs> you know, connect the words together and yeah. ask her. Uh, <laughs> and I did. And I asked her, mom, what's sex? And, at that moment, you know, I have uh, elder siblings. They were there. My mom froze and they were sniggering. And I think I remember her telling me exactly that sex is love. And I didn't ask anything further because somehow when you, you understand from that silence and that tension that there is something that happened that wasn't supposed to happen. And I never really poked at it, but that is the answer I got. And, <laughs> and, um, the, the thing is, I think, um, even with, um, the silence around the, the subject, my saving grace was that I was always an avid reader and whatever answer I couldn't get from adults, you could always find in a book. And, um, even though when you, you sort of grow older, you sort of understand that there are certain subjects, even though you don't quite understand what sex is, you sort of understand it has something to do with, I guess, relationships and men and women, but you're not really connecting the dots really well. <laughs> and, um, uh, I always turn to books for, for, for those sort of things. And I had, um, our house was always well stocked with books, every kind of book you could possibly imagine. I come from a, a family of bibliophiles of the highest order. We always had books for the answers. And I think that was, I think one of the, I guess, defects about learning about sex in that way is that you do find out about sex. It's just that you don't understand it very well as a, a a connection between two people it is um it's a definition but definition does not necessarily tell you the full impact of what it is hmm. yeah do you recall what some of the books were that you were looking to to get information from oh um uh the usual you know encyclopedias and uh I also was a bio major. So by the time you're 15, 16, you do have to um, study human reproduction to give an exam on. So that's always there. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's one of those things in class that uh, you're uh, we always ha we were divided into two major groups. It was either bio or mathematics. And I was a bio student and you inevitably inevitably reach the the chapter of human reproduction and it's a big hullabaloo in class that you're studying human reproduction and it's all you know it's all all really weird awkward but uh you know you study it and you answer the questions on it it's just um you don't know what it is really that's how it is unfortunately yeah and was that um was that class co-ed or were you separated into boys and girls for those classes co-ed and I also remember, and this is again funny uh, about how it is. Um, we started human reproduction when we were in fifth grade. And I remember our bio teacher, our regular bio teacher was so unwilling to teach us because she just didn't want to have to broach a subject with boys and girls present in class. She volunteered the help of our chemistry teacher. Now our chemistry teacher was a force to be reckoned with. This was a no nonsense woman that, that did not, you know, take kindly to any nonsense that came from students. And that's what we, we did. We got our a human reproduction, first human reproduction class in fifth grade from our chemistry teacher. So at what point did you start developing? 
to use your word, crushes that began to feel more romantic, as in, I actually want to touch this person. I want to have interaction with this person. Gosh. Uh, I think some part of that was there, even after puberty. Uh, some small part was there, but I think the real, um, I guess, urge um, or like really strong desire to be with that person was, I would imagine, after I was 18, because I had gone in, gone into college by that time. And um, I remember that it was very distressing for me because you do have such strong feelings for the person and you're still trying to hold on to what you are um are told in in our faith that you wait until marriage you know even physical contact because ultimately uh it does lead to i guess um more than just holding hands or more than just a kiss on the cheek but you you sort of have the feelings, you're not sure. I wasn't sure how to define those feelings. And I think, uh, again, I, I guess I would consider myself unique in that perspective because I think a lot of the other kids, not kids at that age, I guess, uh, young adults who were with me, um, at that age, they knew what they wanted, but I wasn't sure. I just didn't connect the dots as most young adults did at that age. I knew that I had those feelings and those feelings were very strong, so strong in a sense that I would avoid avoid the the person I had a crush on entirely as as much as possible because it was very distressing for me. It was not something that um was really explained to me by any grown-up in my life, whether be that be a parent or an elder sibling, I was just navigating all of this on my own that we do have certain religious restrictions, but you also have very valid feelings that are in you, but you're not sure what to how to reconcile the two. You're really not. And uh, I didn't even have anybody I could talk to about these things really openly. So you mentioned that you had older siblings. These were not conversations that were happening between the siblings? Well, I had an older sister. But uh, again, the dynamics weren't there that these things that she would be comfortable speaking to me about these things, or I would be comfortable with speaking to her about these things. There was a there is a age gap between us. So Automatically, you know, uh, even when I was uh, 18, she was well into her 20s. And so you sort of have that distance and that gap. And it, it became at that age hard to reach out for these things because you weren't sure if you could. Mm. So you mentioned that there were religious boundaries and restrictions. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what that looked like. What are the messages that you were getting? You mentioned that you are Sunni Muslim. Um, what are the messages that you are getting around not just sex and relationships, but also what it is to be a woman? I think first and foremost, I think what we need to separate is the fact that what I heard was a lot had to do with what was cultural as opposed to religious okay. ne necessary, necessarily. So uh, in Pakistan, we, uh, even though it's predominantly Sunni Muslim, but culturally, there's lots of influences uh, from uh, various religions, including Hinduism, Christianity, and um, because uh, there's been so many cultures that exist in that part of the world, simultaneously, a lot of things get mixed up very easily. So uh, a lot of things, and I later discovered these things that were considered religious were not really religious per se. So speaking to your children about sex was not necessarily forbidden in faith. And yes, we have as boundaries of relationships that um, generally uh, genders are, are, especially if they're not from your immediate family, um, are not really supposed to come into physical contact with each other. But um, 
there was uh, the waiting for sex after marriage. That was that is one of uh, a part of our faith, but that didn't mean that we the discussion of sex was uh, off limits. And I found that out this again by myself when I you know sort of ventured into uh, reading religious books because I needed answers. I remember specifically looking up sex in uh, a lot of religious uh, religious books. And what I found was quite surprising because in our religious traditions, there are many, I guess, open discussions about relationships, sexual relationships with the person that you are married to, things that I was not even aware of, that these things were not spoken of ever at all, of how the treatment of women and the uh, how it is, was all there. It's just those things were sort of, again, they were pushed to the side because nobody really wanted to have that discussion. Did you have any sense of what your place was meant to be in terms of marriage and a relationship? Like, did you have a sense of what the male-female dynamic was supposed to look like? Yes. And again, that was more cultural, um, unfortunately, than religious. Pakistan is a patriarchal society. I came from a family where um, it was generally very male-dominated in a very toxic way. I saw very bad dynamics in the husband-wife role. And you sort of have an inkling that there's something not okay, but you're not really sure. Because those are unfortunately the only examples that you see. So even though I grew up, I guess, the troublemaker, in a sense, because I always had a bit of a loud mouth, let's put it, I mean, it is what it was what it was, and it's probably still <laughs> is what it is. I had very few filters. And when I saw something wrong, I spoke out. And I think I rubbed a lot of men in my family the wrong way. And I'm pretty sure they were they were happy to be rid of me after I got married. But it was only because I st stood up to this really bad dynamics of belittling the the good wives that they had, the good women in their lives. And I saw so many of them being destroyed by this awful toxic patriarchy. I really did. And it still to this day makes me so furious. Looking at these relationships, what did that leave you thinking in terms of what you wanted for your own future? I always hoped I would find, um, and again, I guess it was a pretty tall order because I was not the usual. And um, I know I mentioned before that I knew I was always straight, but I always had a lot of non feminine tendencies. I did not, did not like playing with dolls. I did not like tea parties. I would rather be running around playing in the mud, climbing trees. And I think a lot of people suspected that I probably wasn't straight. Um, but that was not true at all. I was, I was pretty straight, straight. <laughs> I never had a interest in clothes or jewelry or makeup, all of those things. So, I I just was hoping for somebody who could really love me for who I was. But again, uh, in a society which exists with within such a box, it was a pretty tall order. I think at one point um I just sort of sort of settled for finding someone who was not um not the biggest jerk in the world. Hmm. Because, again, I saw a lot of toxic behavior culturally that was perpetuated in the men in Pakistan. And I'm speaking specifically of my generation. And um, many of the younger Pakistanis, I see that that dynamics is changing. But at the time, it was not it. And when it came to relationships, I knew it would be pretty much the same kind of formula that is over there. Um, I hate to call it um, uh, the the broad term that's very, um, used here is arranged marriages. It's not really arranged. It's more of a matchmaking system. 
and uh, like resign to that because I'm pretty sure there's nobody out there that would really want me as I am, even though um, all my life I've always um, been co-ed schools, co-ed colleges, co-ed uni- universities. So it's not like there were, were not any men around me. It's just that I wouldn't did not expect them to like me. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, Exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling intimate life, and together we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no-obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. It's fascinating to me that you were seeing these toxic relationships all around you and, and these um, very heavily patriarchal relationships all around you. And you knew that you wanted something different. You knew that that was not what, what was going to work for you. But how did you know? If that's all that you see, how did you know that there was something different that you aspired to? I think um, that desire came from a lot of the escapism I did when I used to read. And I don't think I necessarily read a lot of novels, though those were never my thing. You sort of uh, see a lot of different relationships in books um, and TV. I was a big TV watcher after a certain point in my age when we got more than one TV channel in Pakistan. Um, uh, what you saw on TV is generally a lot of sugar-coated things, but what I really wanted to take away from it is that not the whole dynamics that somebody's going to rescue me or um, I don't know, I will find my knight shiny armor, but that there is some, some semblance of love that does exist in the world. Like there has to be like, I know I felt love for other people. So, I mean, was there someone who could love me back the same way? I think that's, uh, that's the easiest way I could break it. Down. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, you wouldn't call it arranged marriage, you would call it more like a matchmaking kind of system. Prior to your entry into that matchmaking system, was there any dating that happened at all? Was there any mixing between the genders? No. Um, and I was never very outgoing. Uh or very expressive with my emotions. Um, I, and I think it probably had our fan, family existed. We were not um, emotionally transparent as people. Definitely, we suppressed most emotions other than, I guess, anger. Um, and it's not like the the really um, 
loud anger, but split sort of that um, you could feel uh, from one family member towards the other family member. I know that my mother also loved very deeply the people that she loved, even though she was in a very relationship, she loved very deeply. And she was the one, I think, that in our family is the only one who really loved sincerely. That when she said, I love you, she meant it. I had one person being really honest about how, though they were really trapped in a, in a situation that wasn't ideal at all. My mother was honest about her feelings, her emotions, and how she expressed it and how she cared for other people. So I could see, yes, that there are a lot of people in our family that don't necessarily function um, normally, but there was this one person who expressed feelings the way they should be expressed. And that was the only thing that was the, that one thing right, the other thing is wrong in that whole dynamics. Did she ever talk to you about what she wanted for you in terms of relationships? No. And again, this is probably because uh, her own relationship was very unfulfilled. She was one of those people, and I think I inherited this from her, cared very deeply and loved very deeply. But my father um, was not really capable of really showing that kind of love or being able to love in that way. And um, as children, you sort of have a sense of these things, but you really can't... Uh, really define it until you're much older. And I only figured out all of these things again when I was much older. Again, it could be probably just me because I remember my sister, I mean, recently when we talk about our pasts, that uh, she says that, you know, they were always, and I hated it. But, um, I never could sense how deeply it went until... I experienced the same, some of the things that she did in her relationship. And then you sort of fully understand how, um, how heartbroken she was with her marriage. So I think what she probably subconsciously hoped for both her, for both her daughters and for her son to have better relationships than what she got. That, that she also hoped that there has to be something better than this, than what she, she ultimately ended up with. I'm assuming that prior to going into that matchmaking process, you had never had any sustained contact with boys and probably had never been kissed. Is that true? That's very true. And, um, uh, again, um, whatever, um, I guess, any uh, real experience of uh, being touched or kissed or any other kind of contact only happened for me after marriage. Although, I mean, I can, uh, I, again, that might not be like the norm even when I was of that age, because I knew quite a few uh, other kids in college who were in relationships or who were like in semi-relationships, if you want to put it, um, that they did a lot of experimenting knew them and I knew, uh, you know, uh, what they were up to. It's just that I never did. And were you wanting it? Were you desiring to have that kind of physical touch and companionship? Oh, most definite. I mean, um, but again, it's just that I think uh, it could also be how mindset was, is that, that there was this rule and that rule um, uh, should not be broken, even in your mind, sort of thing. And uh, because that's how it was generally portrayed. Nobody was really talking about it, but it was there. And uh, you sort of tried to figure out how best to sort of deal with it. And I dealt with it with a lot of escapism, um, with, you know, really fantasizing about what that um, that great relationship would be. So uh, let's move forward then into 
um, finding a mate. What was that experience like for you? Gosh, uh, I wish I could say it was pleasant, but it wasn't. Um, matchmaking in Pakistan is rarely is for women. Um, I, I, I'm hoping it's better now, but at that time, it really isn't. It's generally women getting dolled up and in front of a lot of strangers and acting as feminine as possible. And all of those things were not something that I was genetically predisposed to. <laughs> um, so those that the entire experience, <laughs> that's how it is. It's just that I just hated the entire thing. And culturally, how is that those that had sons generally had a very had an air of arrogance about them that oh we have a son and we can marry marry him off to whomever he please and he should get some sort of princess that exists in this world even though that would be absolutely awful but it, just because they had a son and that son should ha- get the very best that sort of thing and uh, i remember that there were many occasions in which I would meet uh, these and you, uh, and you do generally have conversations with those that are uh, that are your prospect. You know, you sort of get to ask them how they are and you know what they do, what they like. It's like I just those entire um, interactions left me with something or the other that was very unpleasant, and it was uh, generally that. You got a sense that you were being demeaned at every at every meeting with every new family that came in and you were not really allowed to land of your own um in a sense that most of the times how it was that the the woman had to be pretty tall educated uh dressed well knew how to cook and clean be very domestic you know pretty uh, 19th century uh, thinking when you think about it, but uh, that's how it was at that time. And uh, I just, I just hated the entire process. Um, and every person that would come and we would meet, it just left me deeper and deeper into this spiral of unhappiness that I am pretty sure I'm never going to find anybody that is half decent. So you sort of resign yourself to finding someone that isn't a complete monster. Mm. So I know that you eventually got married. What was it like the first time that you met the man who you married? Well, um, he came from a very nice family. They were well-educated, kind, respectful people from what are a few meetings um, I think the most extraordinary thing about the family was that his mother also used to work. It may not seem so over here, but over there in Pakistan, that was not something that usually happened to have a work- working woman with a family and, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, it was extraordinary. They were good, um, good, kind people towards us. I didn't get have many conversations with my future husband. Um, some of them at that time, you know, cell phones were fairly new. You know, we used to text and everything. But you generally don't get a, a good sense of people just over text. I mean, I think anybody and everybody who's been in a relationship can tell you. Did you have a did you have a feeling about him that was different than about the other men you had met? Well, no. And uh, if I had to be honest, I think um, I did get a bad feeling about him. But sometimes when you don't see the bad, you're not sure what to believe, really. But on the surface, everything was fine. I had no reason to say that, no, I don't want to be married into this family. So it sounds like it ultimately was a challenging match. Um, I don't, I don't actually know what questions to ask you. Um, partially because this is a culture that I'm not familiar with. So I guess I want to ask you, what would you like to tell me? I think, um, 
for, I think my, my reason for speaking up and speaking, and I, I know, you know, this was very hard for me, is just that not just about in, in Pakistani culture, it's, I think, and I, I have met many women during my um, third years of marriage that even though um, now I'm in the in the U.S., they have lived and grew up in the U.S., they still exist in very toxic relationships. And the problem is, um, when it comes to toxic relationships, uh, you're you're not given a warning or a lot of times it's the damage is something that is so subtle that um, you're not even sure it's real damage. And I experienced a lot of that. And, uh, but I think my only saving grace was that I, when I went online found other women who, from whose experience I could really hold a mirror to myself and say, okay, what they went through was bad, then what I am going through is bad as well. And it was it was literally, uh, um, I almost, I mean, went through a doppelganger of my mother's marriage. Mm. And I just... It was it was shocking how similar our experiences were, and when I opened up to my mother much later on about all that I'd gone through, she was in shock because she had gone through the same things, and she was just hoping that it was just my father, that there couldn't be other people like that. So, um. Are you still in this marriage? Yes, I am. But um, I don't intend to be for very long. Uh, it's just that uh, the way it sort of happened was that I lost my final independence when I got married. I was working in Pakistan. I used to work in advertising, making good money. But uh, when we got married, we moved to the U.S., and um, this was deep in the recession. There was no job to be had. I just could not work anymore. And after I had children, it just sort of became another impossible to be able to um, raise children and uh, be able to work at the same time. And plus be in a very difficult relationship as well. It, all of it was a huge huge strain on my ability to be able to even function properly. So um, I, right now I am hoping like within the next year or so be financially independent enough to be able to leave. Mm. I will hope that for you as well. I want to ask you some questions about your experience of sex within the marriage. And I understand that some of these may not be places that you're comfortable talking about. And that's fine. Sure. Was the first time that you had sexual intercourse the night of your marriage? Yes. And what was that like for you? I think that a lot of trauma. Um. Uh, again, nobody really talked to me about any of this. Uh, my mother was generally assuming, yes, I've handed her a bunch of books. She'll be able to figure out sort of thing. But it doesn't work that way. Um, and uh, it was very painful. And later on, I found out that sometimes it is for women. Uh, the first couple of times, it's just that it wasn't just the first couple of times. Uh, our t entire, I think, uh, sexual history has all been very awkward and very painful because uh, nobody had really talked to either of us about what sex is. For him, I know he got a lot of his information, again, not from his parents, but he did have a porn addiction. Um, and he got over into our age as well. And he got 
whatever he knew from porn. And it's, it's just, again, I didn't know better. He didn't know either, but it's not the place you want to learn se about sex. Really, it isn't because that is not, again, not reality. What it was is that, um, is with these two people that knew absolutely nothing about sex, having sex, and not really understanding there is pleasure involved or how pleasure that pleasure is involved. We really didn't know. But he had the advantage. Was there a point at which it ever got better? No. Between us? I don't think so. Uh, I just, when it was beginning, I was just really hoping that here, these things, again, foolish advice from foolish sources, that uh, the more you have sex is, and that there are many, sometimes many um, hindrances to being able to having pleasurable sex. We never discussed sex with each other or how we would like. That was, again, one of those things was not spoken about. Really, in uh, again, culturally, it was not spoken about. Even though between husband and wife, religiously, there are no boundaries. Those are things that we could have openly explored, but we were not told that that's how it was. I also discovered that he, um, I think, or didn't desire sex with me as much um, after a certain point. Because... Again, you hear a lot of stories like you have the honeymoon period and how newlyweds are. And those pieces were sort of not coming together for us. And um, I first thought that, you know, it's probably me because how I am. Even though after our marriage, I tried to be a little more girly, put on, you know, as much makeup as possible, grew my hair out. I I generally didn't like having my hair long because very uncomfortable for me, but grew my hair out, did the whole makeup, jewelry, nice clothes. It didn't seem to be working, that sort of thing. Of course, his behavior was toxic in other respects as well. So, I mean, it was just a very huge, confused bubble. And even though he never really watched porn in front of me, I have had a very strong suspicion that he was into it. I mean, th there was this feeling that I just couldn't shake that I think he's into porn. And it, it was true. He was. I just, he would just watch it like when I was asleep. A lot of times I remember very distinctly that uh, I would be like be in bed and he would have his laptop out and he'd be watching porn and then he'd go to the shower and you know i guess masturbate in the shower get get it over with that sort of thing but uh, it's just that he didn't have that kind of desire for me yeah and did you ever learn to masturbate mm, not until very recently yeah Again, uh, it's just, uh, I wasn't even sure what brought me pleasure. I didn't know. And I was never told um, how it was till very recently. It was not something that I really ventured into. And religiously, it's a bit of a gray area. So some people consider it okay, some don't. But I, uh, but event at a point where I had a lot of desire. It's just that a lot of unfulfilled desire. So it would have probably led me to, to cheat in my marriage. And it's, that's the thing. It was not because I would be hurting him. It's just that I did not want to be in that dynamics. It's a very, really messy dynamics. Uh, when you are cheating on a spouse and you have a family and I just, I'm not a good person with secrets, even though I have some, but this one was not something that I could pull off. I couldn't. Uh -huh. 
So do I understand correctly that your concern was that if you started having sexual pleasure with yourself, you would want more of it and then seek it outside the marriage? No, um, this, I, I knew I wanted, I had, I had, a, I think I have a very uh, high libido. I do though than my husband does. It's just that he, because there came a point when I just did want to be with my husband, but I did really need, um, I guess, a sexual outlet. I did. And I just, it, 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 and until uh, like very recently, I was not sure what that sexual outlet was, would be for me, how that would work. Um, it was only through a very dear friend that, she was like, you know, it's okay. I think you you owe this to yourself, and I'm very grateful to her because it's not just about um, sex. I think it was more about like be for for once in your life doing something that is for you that would make you be okay because up until that point I was not okay in a lot of ways there were a lot of things going wrong in my life and from that point on I just I'm just focusing on being okay and healing myself and this is one part of it. Mm-hmm. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls, and it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex-positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And... I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And speaking of Patreon... There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. As you look toward the future, I hear you saying that you hope that sometime in the next couple of years, you'll be financially independent enough to to create your own life. Um, what do you want for yourself? What do you, in terms of relationship, in terms of sex? Well, um, to be honest, Leah, um, 
after I'm uh, able to end this relationship, uh, logically, as things are, uh, a woman my age, um, there is very little chance of me having any further relationships. And I prefer my relationships monogamous. So there is literally a very little chance of that happening. I think for the future, for myself, if I can be out of this relationship, I can be at peace finally, that I can live a, a good life by myself, and which, is, which at this point I'm fine with. I just want my children to be okay and be able to be the best me that I can be for them. And uh, in terms of relationships, I don't really expect to be in another one. And which is all right, uh, because I have found that my choices out there are terribly, terribly, terribly not not ideal. So I don't want to get into another bad relationship. I don't. Sure. In the event that you did find someone to date and have a relationship with in the future, would it need to be someone within your religious faith community? Or would you be open to others? No, most definitely within the same religious faith community. And I had my very same friend ask me that, would you be open to other races within the same religious faith faith community? And I said, yes, but again, I don't hold my breath for it. It's just, um, you know, I, with my experience of how it is, um, if I was younger and of the younger generation, and I see this wonderful change that is there, that um, it's just that being divorced is not a death sentence in that generation. And they have a lot more caring men men who are dedicated to their families, who really love them. And, but uh, it's a generation and older, that's not how it was. And it would be really hard to, to really find someone like that. So a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that your biggest concern is that um, your children be okay. And I'm curious how you talk to your children about relationships and about sex, because it sounds like you had very little guidance or conversation in that area. That's true. But I, at a very young age, I had sworn to myself that it would not be the same for my children. I had sworn high and low that this would not be the mistake I'd and even though my children are still youngish, I, whatever question they have up with them, I will be very open about it. I will, uh, you know, uh, explain to them how sex is instead of them going outside and finding weird random sources to find, find out these things about, I would rather they come to me that I'd be able to explain to them, even though it's an awkward conversation, I get it, but I want them to come to me. And about relationships, that's a hard one, Leah, because I think that's one of the reasons I want to not be with my my husband. It's just that I don't want them to see this and think that this dynamics is okay. And I want them to see when they grow up, when they have a relationship, it shouldn't be like this, that they have a responsibility, their wives, that they should treat them with love, real love, kindness, and respect. Otherwise, she has a choice. She doesn't have to stay with you. Don't be a jerk. Oh, Hope, I feel like I've asked you all of the questions that I know how to ask. And I'm wondering if there are things that we haven't covered that you think would be important to talk about. I think my entire for really coming and speaking to you, Leah, was that if there is anybody out there 
who's listening, and whether they be Muslim or not, and they exist in a relationship at, uh, and I think it's one of those troubling things about abuse, physical abuse. You can see the scars, but with the kind of emotional abuse that I, that I've been through, you don't see the scars because the scars are on the inside. I just, I'm just hoping, I don't know, is that if somebody's struggling within their relationship, they shouldn't be struggling because that's not what a relationship is about. A real relationship between whomever you choose to be with is not a struggle. Yeah, you have good times, bams. That's that's part of them. That's that's not what I meant. But if there is an everyday struggle with how you connect with the other person, if you can't connect with honesty, trust, with love, um, with even a connection in sex, if any one of those is not there, there's something that has to be fixed. And if the person you're with is unwilling to fix that, then that is a big problem. Because every person deserves to be loved completely. I know for sure that there's no two ways about that. That love encompasses many forms. Sex is one of them. And if you feel unsafe in any one of them, and I felt unsafe in a lot of those aspects, I just didn't know better. And that's why I went through what I went through. But I'm hoping, if whoever is listening, that they feel unsafe or unsure or that they're in a place where there is no trust and honesty, that they find people that can help them. I was lucky. I was very lucky because I left everything behind to come to the U.S., where I was completely alone, completely. I had nobody around me that I could turn to. But I was incredibly lucky that that is when, through Facebook, I met a very wonderful women. I mean, and most of them were not even Muslim. That they showed me the kind of kindness I had not even experienced from people who are supposed to show me kindness. They lifted me up at a time when I was, I felt so low. So my only advice is to find help. Find help wherever you can. Because there is no reason to destroy yourself in a relationship that is on in its basis bad. There is no value in being a martyr like that. No value at all. My only hope is that people out there don't make the same mistakes that I made and a lot of that I, that came before me made. That we do as women deserve love, affection, kindness. Hope, I'm so grateful to you for your bravery. I know how nervous you were before we started and um, you have shown up with such grace and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity, Leah. Uh, I, I wasn't sure how I'd be able to do this because it did 
bring up a lot of things that were very painful. But ultimately, I don't want the same kind of pain for any. It's it's a kind of suffering that can either completely destroy you from the inside or change you into a monster. And I've seen both. And I I just don't want that for anybody else. Yeah. And I pray that you find your way to a space of peace and happiness. Thank you. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Osiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.